Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. When you strip off the bows and ribbons, the veneer, the pretense, life is nothing but a series of choices. Coke or Pepsi, country or jazz, Ford or Honda, this school or that other school, this career or that one, conservative or liberal, her or her. Of course, because life is not fair, some of us wind up with seemingly better more empowering choices, and yet having good options does not necessarily make life easier. This thought spent more than a few years jogging the pavement in Steve Bartkowski's head. Bartkowski was one of the most gifted athletes of his time, so richly blessed that he was presented with the opportunity to play professionally in two sports. The number one overall selection in the 1975 NFL draft, he chose football over baseball and quickly emerged as the starting quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, setting hearts a Twitter while earning Rookie of the Year honors. But the one-time University of California star struggled with injuries and was further hobbled by the limitations of a woeful franchise, a team that felt comfortable in the division cellar. In those days, he often wondered, did I make the right decision? In time, Bartkowski learned to silence the doubts and found a new gear, becoming one of the league's most prolific passers and leading the long-suffering Falcons to their first division title, but not before facing another defining choice. Growing up in uh, the Bay Area, your dad had been a professional baseball player. How did he influence you? Uh, every day. Um, he was an incredibly engaged dad. Um, really joined, 
joined me in my pursuit of athletics uh, in every way, shape, and form. Um, he was uh, always there, never missed a game. I uh, was my coach growing up in baseball, um, knew more about baseball uh, than anybody else. My dad was uh, a very engaged father. Um, he was uh, not only the greatest coach I ever played for, uh, he's my baseball coach growing up through those formative years and um, certainly a tremendous influence on my life, um, shared in my dream uh, in every way that you could possibly share in a kid's dream, um, encouraged me coached me, uh, disciplined me, um, and just, you know, it made athletics fun for me. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, it, it's irreplaceable to have a guy like that who played at a very high level, uh, coaching you every day and um, every minute of every day. Well, obviously, a, a, a lot of kids dream of playing professional sports, but did the fact that he had been a professional athlete, did that make it tangible for you? Well, um, actually, uh, I mean, I can remember telling him that, you know, that's what I wanted to do when I grew up, uh, when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, and I, I just remember his reaction was, you know, you just have no idea how tough it is to get to that, to that level. And, uh, but if that's your dream, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy in lock, stock and barrel and try to help you get there. And yet he knew that it was about a lot more than talent, right? He knew it was all about a lot of little things. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, I think that's uh, what kept me ahead of my peer group growing up uh, at every level. Um, when I was eight years old, I was playing, you know, Major League Little League uh, with 11 and 12-year-old kids um, just because my dad emphasized the little things. Taught me how to run the bases, taught me how to read the outfield when I'm playing infield. Uh, it taught me to think ahead. You know, if the ball's hit to you, what are you going to do? Um, just all the little things that just, uh, you know, differentiate the guys who are playing from the guys who really knew how to play. And what was it that motivated you as a young person um, to work so hard to chase that dream? Well, a number of things. Uh, you know, I think it, you know, when you set a goal for yourself, you want to give yourself every opportunity in the world to to achieve that goal. And uh, you know, it was important to me. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I oftentimes joke around when I tell people I, I sort of went to sports and played school, you know, all the way through. And, uh, you know, something I'm not really proud of, but I, you know, I mean, I had, uh, you know, a great opportunity to be, you know, highly educated and so on and so forth. But it was really a stepping stone for me, uh, to the next level. Uh, you know, high school was, you know, I was a B average kid that probably should have been an A student. Um, but I just wanted to do enough to stay eligible to play football, basketball, and baseball. And, you know, um, the same thing in college, I played both baseball and football, uh, in college. And, you know, I mean, I knew I had to stay eligible you know, so so i didn't really apply myself the way that i should have uh academically um uh, because i was an athlete and that was uh you know those were two stepping stones that i had to i had to make in order to get to my ultimate goal well i think uh, one of the and we talked about this before one of the interesting things about your story and your dad's influence is the fact that that he had been, been a minor league ball player he never made it to the ultimate level and yet, uh, you had an opportunity to sign with the Royals uh, out of high school for a pretty good amount of money, and he wouldn't let you because he had this experience of, of having 
quit high school, right, to, to support his family. Exactly, Keith. Uh, it was, uh, he was the youngest of 11 kids. He had five brothers and five sisters, and uh, his mom and dad had come over from Poland, uh, settled in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and, you know, my dad was an incredible athlete. I mean, uh, he, he, he was an unbelievable guy. I mean, he, he was uh, ambidextrous. I mean, he, he was a natural left-hander. But, you know, when we had a game coming up against a right-handed pitcher, he could put the glove on the other hand and, you know, snap off curveballs thrown right-handed. I mean, I've never seen anybody like him um, from that perspective. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, he thought it was his duty uh, to drop out of, you know, as a sophomore in high school and sign a contract with the Cubs. And, uh, you know, he sent half of everything he made home to support the family. So, uh, that's just kind of guy, guy that my dad was. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it was just, that was a tremendous influence on my life. No, no question about it. Uh, he knew how tough it was to get to that, you know, the ultimate level. And uh, I think that's maybe why he shook his head when I, told him that I wanted to be a professional athlete myself. Well, I mean, uh, to me, I mean, that, that kind of speaks to the whole nature beyond sports or anything that you want your kids to do better than you've done. And you don't want them to have to struggle with the things that you've had. And he was very, obviously, uh, very wise in pushing you in that way. Yeah. I mean, he told me the truth. My dad never, uh, you know, he never spiced it up for me. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he told me when I didn't play well, he told me what I did wrong. Um, you know, as a way of, uh, uh, just trying to set me straight and, you know, trying to make me never feel comfortable with, uh, whatever level I played at, you know, I mean, I could hit, I can remember I could hit, hit a home run and, and uh, make great plays in the field. And, and he, I, we'd come home and on the way home, he'd be talking to me about uh, what the, when I didn't cover a second base, when I should have, you know, I mean, the little things and just continue to harp on me like that. And, you know, he just really set a tone for me to, um, to strive to be perfect, uh, to try to do it right every time. And uh, that's what you have to do to, to make it to that elite level. And my dad knew that. Well, you were such a, obviously such a good uh, all-around athlete that you were recruited to, to Stanford to play football by Jim Plunkett. And why didn't you want to follow Jim Plunkett? <laughs> well, because it was Jim Plunkett. I mean, Jim, <laughs> I mean, he, he was uh, just an incredible college quarterback and, and, and a quite incredible pro that never really got to the right team until he got to Oakland. Uh, and they went to that Super Bowl and, and, and closed the deal. Um, but Jim was a, you know, he was a, and he's only four years older than me, uh, but, you know, I mean, he was a, like my idol. Um, I stood on the sidelines for most of Stanford's home games that year that they won the Rose Bowl, and he won the, he won the, I believe, the Heisman Trophy. I think he, he won it that year. But anyway, um, you know, Jim came and watched me play high school basketball. He sat in the stands like three different times, and that's how badly Stanford wanted me to come there. Um, but, you know, he, he was – he was just, I didn't, I didn't want to follow in somebody's footsteps like that. Um, you know, to be honest with you, they were still, you know, at Stanford, they were still looking when John Elway got there, they were still looking for the next Jim Plunkett, you know, um, the guys that came in behind him had a tough, tough road to hoe. And uh, I, so I wanted to cut my own swath, so to speak. And I went to a, you know, a, a, a program that was struggling in, in all honesty. And, uh, 
you know, it was a chance for me to, to uh, put something together um, in the way of having the right teammates and so on and so forth. And, you know, really, really do something special there at the University of California. Now, how did football enter into the overall experience at Berkeley in the early 70s? <laughs> well, the overall experience was pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, for a conservative kid from the Midwest, even though I sort of grew up in California, I mean, it was, uh, it was a strange place to be. Uh, there was every kind of human being known to band that was uh, on the campus there at the University of California. And uh, it was, you know, very eye-opening from my, stand- my standpoint. And, uh, you know, I had to learn to, to deal with all sorts of different ethnicities, uh, you know, uh, schools of thought. Um, we just had, you know, it's a, it's a hyper-intelligent uh, campus. Uh, and, and it was a tough place for a guy who, like I said, went to sports and played school to fit in. Um, but, you know, I mean, I loved my experience there. Uh, it was great. Um, you know, the, the football was, was different. Um, you know, we'd have 25 or 30,000 people in an 80,000 seat stadium, you know, for every game, except for like every home game, except for Stanford when we played them at home. And, you know, we had a full house then, but, you know, football just was, uh, it was just not very important to the, you know, the student body and, and the people, you know, at the university, um, it just didn't seem to be the rallying point that it is today for so many universities. And, you know, it was uh, something, you know, frankly, I, I, you know, I played football to get myself in shape for baseball. You know, I mean, baseball was my sport at that point in time. And, and you were an All-American baseball player. I played, yeah, I did. I made All-American my sophomore year there at Cal. And, um, you know, I mean, I really thought that's where my career was going to end up. I was going to end up behind the plate somewhere in the in the major leagues, but uh, didn't work out like that. You know, Kansas City uh, drafted me. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the lead scout Dick Hager had a junior working under him, uh, a guy named John Sherholtz, <laughs> who ended up, you know, running the Braves and that great run that they had back in the. Uh, uh, you know, not too distant uh, uh, past, you know, they, they won 10, you know, championships uh, uh, and, you know, went to several world series and, and uh, John and I went into the Atlanta sports hall of fame together. And I asked him if he remembered coming to the house and, and uh, he and Dick Hager and, and, and offering me that, that kind of money uh, for a 33rd round draft pick uh, the same year that George Brett was picked by them, number one. Uh, and I told George that he's, he's fortunate that I didn't uh, go that route because they'd have talked about me a lot more in baseball than they do about him. So the two or three things happened to conspire to, to kind of push you uh, to becoming a football player, uh, more than a baseball player. One was Vince Ferragamo, and another was, uh, was Mike White becoming the, the head coach. Yeah, you know, uh, Ray Wilsey and his staff got fired my freshman year. Uh, they had been uh, discovered that they changed some transcripts to get a couple guys into school there. Uh, one of them was Ike Curtis. Uh, you know, Isaac played a number of years for the Bengals and another guy named Lonnie Crittenden. They were the two guys that they got busted for. I think they were both JC guys and and uh, they altered some transcripts to get them in and they, they found that out. So, uh, you know, the whole staff got fired and Mike White got, uh, who was over at Stanford during the Jim Plunkett, you know, heydays, um, offensive coordinator there under John Ralston. Uh, you know, Mike came in and, and he recruited 
his guy, who was Vince Ferragamo, I mean, who was the next thing since sliced bread out of Southern California there. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was not, not a, any, you know, water off my back, to be honest. Uh, I, again, you know, I played football to be in shape for, for baseball. And, and uh, that wasn't going to stop me from, uh, you know, from going out and playing a game that I love. I love football as well, you know. So, um, but when Vince got there, I knew I was going to, you know, it was going to be a battle. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, if I'm going to throw my hat in the ring, I'm going to give you everything I got. And, uh, you know, ended up starting, uh, about as many games as Vince did. He, Vince was a year behind me, came in, uh, as a freshman, the year that fresh freshmen were declared eligible for, for varsity football, which was, you know, I was a year before that. And, uh, you know, Vince kind of won the job in, in training camp and, and, uh, I wasn't really going to come back and play my junior year because I'd had that All-American year in baseball and I wasn't eligible for the baseball draft at that point because I didn't sign out of high school, so I wasn't 21 yet. But, uh, you know, I mean, I figured, you know, shoot, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and devote myself uh, to baseball because I had a great summer playing for the Liberal BJs and, you know, I had a, you know, just continued on that whole uh, off of my sophomore year at school, you know, continued having a, you know, hitting the ball out of the ballpark and driving in a lot of runs and being able to catch and play a little first base. And, you know, I mean, it just, you know, didn't even occur to me that I'd go back and play again football. And, and, uh, so I figured, you know, it was Vince's, you know, he was Mike's guy and you know, that's the way it was going to be. But, you know, I, I ended up, you know, Vince decided he'd had enough of the 25,000 people in the stands and decided he was going to go to Nebraska. And, you know, everybody was kind of, you know, on me to come back and, and, uh, and play. And so I, j I came back and, and uh, uh, you know, plugged in with football again. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. Mike puts, starts putting his system in, and you guys start throwing the ball around like nobody's business. Oh, yeah, it got fun. Football got fun, you know, and uh, – you know, Vince wasn't playing great. And, and, uh, you know, I got a chance to start, I think five or six games and he probably started that many. And, uh, I think I ended up playing better than he did at the end of the day. And, um, and that's when he decided that he'd had enough of Cal and, and, uh, transferred out and went to Nebraska. So, you know, um, that year I didn't have a very good, uh, year, uh, playing baseball my junior year. Um, I hurt my elbow uh, in a football game and my left elbow and non-throwing elbow. So, I mean, I, I had to, I had to bat left-handed a lot during the year uh, in baseball and just had a kind of a setback year for me and uh, was drafted, I think in the 19th round by the Orioles. Um, and, you know, uh, they offered me nothing, you know, 500 bucks in a month and an opportunity to go play rookie ball in, in Florida. And I just, you know, at that point, I just kind of gave up on baseball and Vince was gone. The quarterback job was mine. So I just devoted myself that summer to getting in the best shape of my life and, um, you know, giving it a run. And it, it ended, ended up being a pretty good idea that I did that. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us, AmericanAchievers.us, or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you can access our exclusive monthly email newsletter, 
the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show American Achievers Green Room, where you can interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Now back to the program. Well, obviously, I mean, uh, and people would be amazed. I, I went back and looked at the stats. I think you threw for a little over 2,500 yards that year, and you led the country. Yeah, how about that? You think the game hasn't changed? <laughs> <laughs> These guys are throwing for 2,500 yards in six games now. You know, it's uh, it's amazing how, you know, the emphasis has changed. Uh, and Mike, Mike's, I, Mike White's offense, too, was was a blast to run. We really had some great skill players. You know, I, I mentioned Chuck Muncie earlier. You had a guy named Howard Strickland who was a, you know, a running back there. Um, you know, uh, we, Steve Rivera, um, you know, a guy named, guy named um, um, you know, it, it, up and down the line. Ted Albrecht was a great, great football player, left tackle there, played with the Bears for a number of years. So, you know, Mike really started to put some things together there at the university and, you know, brought it back to to some some relevance within the pack eight at that point in time. And, uh, you know, my senior year, we had a pretty good year, seven, three and one. Uh, the one tie we had was um, against the national, the eventual national champions that year, the USC Trojans. You know, we tied them 15, 15, um, our kicker uh, missed a 26 yard field goal with no time left and you know, we should have beaten them. So anyway, it was a, it was a good run. We had, you know, I had a blast uh, doing it and, uh, you know, uh, played with it. I, it, I found out that football is a lot easier when you're surrounded by great people, <laughs> good folks, good players. And when you're winning. Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden you're a football player yep. and, and baseball is gone. You're drafted number one and you go to Atlanta where they had very little success and you have a great rookie year, rookie of the year. And next thing you know, one injury after another. Yeah. Yeah, it was tough. It was at about that point in time, I guess, my third year that I was thinking, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe that Baltimore Oriole offer was a better one after all, you know. Um, maybe I should have played baseball. But, uh, you know, too late to turn back. You know, I'm three years into my career, and I've been through, you know, two knee surgeries and uh, elbow uh, surgery. So, you know, I mean, it just is one of those things where, you you, you know, it's not like it is today. You know, you, you sort of got to play the hand you were dealt back when I, when I played. Um, not many guys have been able to orchestrate, uh, you know, the whole John Elway, Eli Manning deal, you know, where they can kind of, they can choose where they want to go if they're going to be the top draft choice in the draft. So, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I honestly, it was just uh, one of those deals where, you know, I mean, we, we had a very, very uh, uh, poor organization. I mean, I don't know how to say it any better than that. I just, uh, the Falcons did not know, you know, how to put it together. They didn't have a front office that, that could, could figure it out. Um, and, you know, they just weren't very good at, um, at putting the right, the right kind of team on the, on the field. And it was tough. Uh, finally, Lehman Bennett came in my fourth year and uh, I came back from a bunch of injuries and wasn't playing very well and lost my job, you know, in preseason to a guy named June Jones. 
uh, an undrafted free agent from Portland State who did six years in college. You know, I mean, it was, it was just it, 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 my whole life had had started to, you know, go sideways. Was that humbling for you? Yes, very much so. It was. Uh, it humbled me to the point of where I really knew I had to make some changes in my life. Um, there had to be some things that uh, that I had to I had to take care of, um, so to speak. I just wasn't living, you know, the way that I should have been living. And uh, luckily, we had a, a group of guys on the on the football team at that point in time at the Atlanta Falcons. They called themselves Christians, and they were really, you know, I, I started to observe those guys, and it was a tight unit. Um, of four or five guys that that really you know sort of had great families that you know kids they seemed like they they were the hardest working guys you know on the team they they were guys that uh, that really understood how to play the game and uh, and and I really I really envied what they had and saw what they had and you know it was at that point in time I think when when God kind of used that whole that whole instance uh, or that cert that, that, uh, that realm of circumstances that, that I was experiencing there to really get my attention, you know, uh, football and being an athlete was the biggest thing in my life. And uh, that needed to change, you know? Um, and I, I just, uh, you know, came to the point where, you know, I, I'd lost what I really, the only thing I ever wanted in life and uh, had, had been taken from me and I needed to make some changes. So it was at that point in time that I, I became a Christian and, and, and I rallied with those guys. And luckily there was a, uh, you know, or I should say blessedly, there was, there was a bunch of guys that uh, really helped me grow and, and understand what had just happened to me. And, uh, and that changed everything for me, just changed my, the whole reason I played, um, you know, the, uh, you know, it just, it just, it just changed. It altered my, my uh, landscape, so to speak. Did that alter your whole view of the world? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Keith, I can't even begin to tell you how, you know, I mean, I became, uh, it, it, what, it wasn't about me anymore. It was about, you know, if, if I got my job back, I knew that it was by the grace of God. And, and I knew that he had something planned for me, uh, beyond football. And, uh, you know, while I was going to play and, and I was going to continue to try hard. And, you know, if, if, if I got my job back, I was, I was going to be a changed man and uh, people were going to see that change and I was going to tell them about it, you know? Uh, so it was, uh, it was, you know, it was just, <laughs> two weeks later, you know, after being benched, I got my job back and June Jones happened to be one of those Christian guys that I looked at and, and admired uh, his his attitude and the way he worked uh, and what he stood for. You know, Greg Brzezina, Ray Easterling, uh, Ralph Ortega. You know, we just had a great core group of Christians on the team. Wallace Francis, um, just people that 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 I knew I could depend on, and uh, they had something different about them that 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 really uh, differentiated them from from the rest of the guys. And you know, it was. Uh, it was it was it was life changing, uh, without a doubt. Did your work ethic change? Is that what it was? I think my uh, the mentality about my work ethic changed. Uh, you know, I nobody was ever going to outwork me, uh, but I was working. You know, to try to see how much money I could make, to see you know if I could be an all pro. If you know, 
I mean, I, I, I had the wrong set of goals, you know, um, after I became a Christian, I was working harder than anybody else because I wanted people to see in me what I'd seen in those other guys. And, um, I wanted them, you know, somebody to ask me, you know, what, what, what's the difference? What, you know, what made the difference in your life? And, um, I'd be able to tell them and testify that, and, Hey, look, you know, you know, I had this life changing experience where I realized that I was created for God's glory. And, uh, and I was supposed to love and enjoy him for the rest of my life and allow him to live his life out through me. And, you know, I, I just, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, it was super, super important for me to not let him down, you know, after I got this second chance, you know, to, to, to become the player that I eventually became, uh, because he gave me that second chance. He, he, he said, okay, now that you get, now that you got it right, now that you know, it's me and it's not you, uh, let's see how far we can go. Did your whole view of, of achievement change as a result of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think my priorities changed. You know, I mean, I had, uh, you know, I, I was, became more of a teammate. Uh, it wasn't about me anymore. You know, it wasn't about how many yards I could throw for, how many touchdowns I threw. It was about, you know, the, the overall team uh, becoming the best that we could become. And what I needed to do, to do my part to make sure that because it's a big part you know when you're playing quarterback for a national football league team that's a big part and you and you know but you're not the only part and i think i came to realize that i'm not the only part and i started to elevate my teammates you know every time i got kudos i passed it along to the people who really deserved it my offensive line you know the guys that are catching the ball for me the guys that are blocking for me um you know i just wanted to defer you know, any praise and any glory that might come my way, because I knew it didn't belong to me. You know, it belongs to the guys that made me who I am and belongs to the one who gave me life and, and a second chance in life. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. 1980, you had an incredible year. Uh, led the league in touchdown passes. You guys won the division. Uh, you had a heartbreaking loss to the Cowboys when you should have beaten them. Yeah. Put me in that locker room. <laughs> so tough. So tough. I mean, we had so many young guys on that team. And, and uh, you know, we just had, you know, uh, there was a collective, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, really, uh, confidence that – you know, everybody walking around, oh, man, we'll get him next year. Don't, you know, don't, oh, yeah, man, don't get too down about this. You know, I mean, that's what guys were saying. And I was sitting there and I was just, I mean, it was like somebody stabbed me in the heart. You know, I mean, we had that ball game, you know, wrapped up. And, you know, it's just one of those things. It, and it just, you could feel it slip away. You could feel the momentum uh, go the other way. And, and uh, I just didn't know if we'd ever have that opportunity again. I would hope for that. I would hope for that, that we'd have an opportunity like that again, but, uh, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure it would happen, you know, and, uh, you know, the next year, I think we came back and we, and I think we had such a roster turnover. It was crazy. Uh, we lost a lot of key players. They let guys walk, you know, cut guys, you know, that were making a little more money than the, some of the younger guys that, uh, they brought on board and it just collectively the, uh, you know, the, the locker room changed and, uh, we didn't have the kind of football team that we had the year before 1980. And, 
know, uh, it was tough. It was hard to take. Um, you see some of your buddies go and, and uh, some of the guys who were really important um, in that whole locker room experience, you know, and that, that, uh, that becomes a, a big, big uh, chemistry experiment really is what it becomes. Um, everybody tries to get just the right elements there, you know, in the locker room. And I think we had it in 1980, didn't have it in 81. Um, and it was just a, we took a step back and, and never really, never really became the team I thought we could become. What was your favorite thing about playing football? Uh, my favorite thing probably was that, I mean, that, that, that whole season of 1980, you know, right up until the last game, you know, that was, uh, collectively that was the that was the, the the strongest run that I'd ever been a part of on a football team I mean we won nine in a row I think we started out three and three won nine in a row and then we lost the last game after we'd already clinched the division and uh and the home field advantage uh the Bengals um but you know um yeah it, it just was so much fun because I mean when you win nine games in a row it was somebody different every week um coming up with a big play that the game turned on and uh, it was fun to fun to be a part of that you know uh, uh, football is the ultimate team game there's no question in my mind uh, uh, everybody anybody's that played my position they, they will tell you that it's just it's just one part of a of a huge group of guys that need to come together every week and uh, lay it on the line um, and when you get that going um, you have that feeling that um, somebody's going to make a play. Somebody's going to make a play, and you're going to win the game. Uh, that's kind of the feeling that we had in 1980. When you were in the zone and you were throwing one great pass after the other and you couldn't do anything wrong, how did that feel? Wow. I mean, that <laughs> I don't know that I was in it that much, but uh, – it's pretty special, you know, and it just seems like, you know, you're, everything's clicking. You're seeing stuff, you know, early, early in the drop, you know where you're going with the football, the guy's beating his guy out there outside. You're getting the time to stand in there and, and operate. Um, man, it just, it's a, it's, it's like a well-oiled machine. You know, it's just, everybody's doing their part and uh, the game slows down. You know, it's just, you've heard people say that before. And that's actually what happens when you're having one of those spectacular performances where, you know, you're 24, 28 for 300 yards and four touchdowns. I mean, it's, there's a lot of guys that are responsible for your success, but it all just seems so easy. And the game seems so slow at that point that uh, you just see everything, you know, I mean, you're just, you're just tuned in. Um, every part of your body is, is just primed and, uh, and running at full speed. And how did you deal mentally? Uh, you go out and throw an interception. It's really costly. How did you learn to deal as a quarterback with not dwelling on that? Yeah, that's that's the thing about the game. You know, you can't get that one back. You know, um, and it's it's tough. It's uh, you know that athletics is. Uh, I mean, you don't win every time. Yeah, you don't you don't get it right every play. Um, you know, all you can do is your best. Uh, my dad used to tell me, if you can stand in the mirror at the end of a game and say, I gave what I had, you know, I made mistakes, but I gave what I had from an effort standpoint and from a mentality standpoint, um, you know, you just had, you just got to let it go yeah, because <laughs> there's no trophies for the past, you know, it's only for the future, right? Um, you don't get any rewards 
for going back. You know, you got to let it, you just got to, you got to have a short memory and uh, get out there and play the next play, get out there and, and tee it up the next, you know, the next go round and, and uh, just do the best you can again. What's the most important lesson you've learned just about a chasing success that transcends football? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a hard question to ask. If I had to, if I had to nail it down, um, I would say you know, uh, maybe, a, maybe a sense of uh, uh, unconditional uh, uh, um, I don't know, best way to put it, uh, make, make, make others great around you. Do whatever it takes to make uh, your team and the guys that, are, that surround you, learn, learn what it is that motivates them. Learn what it is that, that really turns their crank uh, and help them achieve their goals. Um, and this, I think, works in business as well as in sport. You know, um, if you can, we're all, we're all, none of us, there, there are very few people that I think um, are in a position in life to where they either sink or swim by their own efforts. Um, I think in a, in a team element, whether you're the boss of a company or you're the quarterback of a football team, if you can get to know the people that are responsible for your success, learn what it is that motivates them, learn what it is that, that, that turns their crank and help them in every way, shape and form that you possibly can get what they want. Cause in the end, you get what you want and what you need. You need their effort. You need, you give them whatever tools they need to get uh, to, to be successful and help them achieve their goals. And you'll find that by and large, if you can make that happen, you're going to get what you want and you're going to achieve your goals. Like every athlete, uh, you, you faced the, you know, the end and uh, you got cut by the Falcons at the end. You, you played a little bit more with the, with the Rams. How tough was that? Well, it was tough because uh, the situation I was put in put me in a very uh, compromising situation, if you will. Um, I, I can remember the day, I mean, I knew that, that there was going to be a change made. I think we were 0-6. I think, go back in time, I think I was still leading the league in passing. Um, you know, but we were just an awful football team at that point. Um, you know, I was still given, you know, whatever I had, you know, my effort was still there on my, you know, I still was plugged in and, and trying the best I could to, to try to help the guys around me be the best that they could. And, uh, I knew that Dave Archer was going to be the guy of the future. And I knew that that time was going to come at some point. Um, I was, I had, you know, I was down to a quarter tank of gas in the tank, so to speak. And, uh, that call came and, and Dan Hannon called me up to his office and, and he uh, looked me in the eye and he said, he said, Barty said, I think it's time for you to retire. I said, well, Dan, I said, I'm sure going to give it every consideration at the end of the season. I said, but you know, right now, you know, we are on six and we need to figure out a way to win some football games. And he said, no, 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 you misunderstand me. He said, I, I want you to retire. You need, you need to retire. And I said, Dan, I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go, I'm not going to go downstairs and tell those guys I quit because we're rolling six and I'm, I'm, you know, we're not playing well. And, and I said, you know, if, if you want to make a change, 
I'm not going to retire. You, you're going to need to cut me. And he did. He cut me. You know, and I, I asked him if Rankin Smith, the owner of the club, was on board with that. And he said he, he, he assured me that he was. And uh, so that was a difficult time. You know, I mean, <laughs> when you give your heart and soul to some something and somebody and, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're just rejected by him. You know, that was a, a difficult pill to swallow. Um, and I certainly wasn't going to go downstairs and tell my brothers in arms, so to speak, uh, that I quit, you know, I'm just, I'm not that kind of guy. I've never quit anything in my life. I'm not going to start now. That's what I told Dan and, and, uh, and they cut me. Um, so, you know, it was, uh, like I said, it was tough. You know, I told all the, you know, I, I, I didn't want to tell anybody the real true story. Cause I didn't want anybody walking out on the team. I didn't want guys to, you know, especially my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, the guys that I was involved in Bible studies and, and everything else with, you know, guys that I was closer than brothers with, you know, that I didn't want to tell them what happened because I didn't want to sour them on the organization. I didn't want to sour them on the team, you know, so I just kind of concealed that. And, uh, and the story didn't come out until late in the year when the season was just about over. Uh, and the truth came out, you know, finally, I just, you know, the Lord kind of vindicated me and, I was allowed to sort of, you know, tell my story. And um, so it was tough, you know, I had to bite my tongue a bunch of times and, you know, they, you know, guys, they put me on the injured reserve. So I was still kind of around the organization, but uh, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to play anymore for the Atlanta Falcons. And, um, so it was tough, just tough. And how did you make the decision to, you know, walk away eventually? Well, I mean, I had no choice. I mean, I, I, uh, I thought I could still play, you know, if they had the right components around me, I got a chance to, uh, to go to LA the, the year, the year before they, you know, they lost in a, in the, uh, NFC, uh, championship game. They lost to, uh, the bears, the bears beat everybody that year. And, and uh, they shut the, the Rams down, you know, they beat them 10 to nothing, I think. And Dieter Brock was a quarterback out there and, they weren't real happy with Dieter. And, and uh, so I, I, you know, I mean, I said, you know, Tom Lee Steinberg was my attorney. I said, they see if the Rams would be interested in giving me a year out there. And I went out there and won the job <laughs> in preseason. And, and uh, you know, we came out of the box. I think we we're five and one or six and one, something like that. When I, I got benched, uh, they trade, they made the Jim Everett trade. Uh, Steve Dills started a couple games in there in the interim and, I hurt my knee really bad again, you know, swelling up every, every week. And I was getting it drained every week and taking shots in it just so I could go play. And, you know, finally, uh, Robbie, John Robinson called me in his office and he said, Bart, he said, I can't watch you hobble around out there anymore. I said, well, all I'm doing is handing the ball off to Dickerson. So, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not too tough as long as I can reach him on the, on the, uh, the, the stretch plays, you know, I mean, I think I, you know, we were pretty efficient. Um, Unfortunately, that was the same year Henry Ellard held out. And we didn't have much receiver-wise going for us. And uh, so it was a Eric Dickerson show at that point in time, but he sure was fun to watch run. Looking back on those days now, and of course, you, you know, you're talking about the, the psych of li- cycle of life in football, and it happens to everybody. Jim Everett was going to be one of the great quarterbacks of the next age. Did that seem like it went by in the, in the blink of an eye? 
Uh, yeah, it did. It did. I think you you uh, uh, you tend to savor, you know, uh, that last opportunity, you know, um, and you want to kind of squeeze every bit of life out of it. Um, but yeah, it was quick. It was kind of a surreal experience. I mean, here I was going back to California, you know, and you know, I'd watch some of my heroes do that, you know, guys, you know, Burt Jones did it at the end of his career, you know, uh, Joe Namath did it at the end of his career, Pastorini did it, you know. Um, so I said, well, why not, you know, let's go give it a shot, you know, and, and they certainly had a Super Bowl capable team, you know, that was the, a great offensive line, with, you know, Jackie Slater and Irv Panky and uh, Dennis Harrow. I mean, just guys that, you know, I watched play because it was in the same division for so many years, you know, and I knew how good they really were. And uh, so to get a chance to play with them, I mean, heck, it was it was a no brainer for me. It was great. Um, I really enjoyed my time out there. Met one of the great guys in, you know, in, in my life. The guy that was a chaplain out there, a guy named Chuck Obremski. Um, and Chuck and I were, you know, got to be fast friends. Lived in Jeff Kemp's home, rented Jeff's. He got traded to San Francisco when I went out there. So I actually, uh, I actually really enjoyed my time there in Orange County. When you think back about that 1980 team, I mean, honestly, you probably had the best team in football that year. Does that haunt you that you didn't that you didn't make that happen? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, every year it seems like ESPN replays that game just to remind me how down in the dumps I should be. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just uh, it, it was just. I mean, I think we could have scored every time we had the football against them. And uh, you know, Lehman um, he called off the dogs midway through the third quarter and. You know, I, I can remember, you know, uh, thinking, well, you know, we just need to score more points, man. You know, I mean, that's it. You, you can't let these guys back in this game. And, and uh, but this is the way we played football. You know, we won those, we rattled off those nine wins in the middle of the season there. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, that's the way we did it. We, we did the old Dean Smith, you know, we four cornered them, you know, and uh, we're going to run out the clock, you know, we had, two great running backs and Lynn Kane and William Andrews and a great offensive line. And we just kind of got ahead of people and then we just kind of hid the ball from them, you know? Uh, and that's the way we tried to play in that Dallas game. And it just came back to haunt us. Um, I think it, uh, looking back on it, I, I really believe that we could have scored every time we had the ball and uh, should have, but that would have been my chance. We had, I mean, I, we'd have gone to Philadelphia and beat them the next week. I have no, no doubt in my mind. Um, I don't know, even though I think we had home field advantage. We might have had a home field advantage, but I knew you know, we'd beaten them earlier in the year. Um, and then, you know, I'd had a chance to play against my my childhood idol, you know, Jim Plunkett in the Super Bowl, you know. Uh, uh, and I, I wasn't going to take a bullet for Jim. I promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to go ahead and beat the, the, the Raiders too. So, but uh, anyway, that's, you know, it's all kind of, you know, speculation on my part, but I, I do think we had the best team in football that year. What did disappointments like that um, in football teach you that strengthened you in your life away from the game? Well, you know, I mean, it's uh, number one, the, uh, the those kinds of, of circumstances, those kinds of situations don't present themselves that often. So, you know, I mean, it, it you know, it, as I look back on it, it was a, a tremendous uh, uh, disappointment to not get over the hump and uh, to get to the big game. Uh, you know, that's everybody's goal when season starts. 
and at season's end you you analyze you know what your progress was toward that goal and um it, it very difficult to to let something like that go but again you know we, as i talked about earlier you got to let it go because you know you know we're going to line up in 1981 and go play again and um you can't be thinking about what happened in last year you know you just gotta you gotta learn from it you know as much as you possibly can uh, but at the same time um yeah, I think there's a lot of growth that happens in uh, disappointments. You know, there's a chapter in a little book that that uh, Dan DeHaan, my uh, who was a chaplain at the Falcons when I came to Christ, and that uh, yeah, we wrote a little book called Intercepted. And there's a there's a, a chapter in that book called Disappointments or His Appointments. Um, so, you know, as a Christian, you try to look on the bright side of everything. You know. Um, you know, lessons learned and, and uh, you know, different things that uh, that you could uh, you know, glean from uh, an experience like that. But, it, you know, it doesn't lessen or, you know, the, the, the pain is still severe. You know, at the end of the day, it's 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 a it's an opportunity that uh, was lost. Um, but you got to march on. How tough was the transition out of football? You got in the construction business. Yeah, it uh <laughs> You know, it really was pretty easy. Uh, I, I like, I mean, I tell people when I, when I speak publicly, I, I don't feel like I've ever had a real job. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I've kind of accomplished my goal of making it through life without a real job. You know, I never felt like I had to go to work, you know. Um, I, I worked, you know, in the construction industry and, and loved every minute of it. I, I, I was with a great group of people. Uh, company I work for, DPR Construction, is is still I think the best the best general contractor on the planet. Um, just a great group of guys, smart, bullet smart guys that uh, and gals that are just on top of their game. Um, tell people it's the best team I ever played for. Really, <laughs> it's uh, it's been a lot of fun, or it was a lot of fun those twenty years that I spent doing that. Um, now I'm uh, you know shoot I'm I'm still hosting a bunch of those people now i don't have to go see them anymore they come and see me i've got we had two big dpr groups come to the lodge this year we'll have probably two or three more next year uh so you know i'm still having that same interaction with my friends and still talking up the company the lodge is called uh, ruby drake lodge uh it's in twin bridges montana which is uh the best uh place that god created in the lower 48 states there's no doubt We've been coming out here for 25 years uh, uh, and, and hunting and fishing uh, with my boys. And, you know, we uh, ended up having this opportunity for Pete, my youngest boy. Uh, he had an opportunity to to uh, to get his outfitters uh, uh, license and guide license and 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 the opportunity to, to lease this lodge uh, that's owned by a good friend of mine. And, um, you know, I mean, it was uh, it, it was just. I, I don't know how to say this, Keith, other than the fact that it's a God thing. This this whole thing is a God thing. Um, God worked it out. He knew I wanted to be here for 40 years. I've tried to figure out a way to move to Montana and do something that uh, I really love to do. That is hunt and fish and enjoy the outdoors. And, and uh, you know, just one piece after another fell in this direction. And uh, God opened this, opened this door and gave Pete this lodge and, and, uh, Sandy, my wife and I, you know, we are plugged in trying to help him establish a business and have something that he can be proud of going forward in life. And, uh, you know, we're just, we're just having fun. 
just having a blast doing, you know, what, what, what God's given us to do, you know? Um, so I still don't feel like I have a real job, even though I cook breakfast every morning for the groups that are here. Um, that's my one, uh, that and making dump runs. I, I do that as well. But, uh, anyway, it's been, it's been a blast. And, uh, it's, it's like I said, one of the, one of the, uh, it's one of the seven wonders of the world here. I love Twin Bridges, Montana. Thinking back on, you know, when you were a kid and, and you'd go out and play catch with your dad, I, you know, I guess that's where it all began, right? Uh, I, and that's a, that's something that, that millions of us share. Um, and yet you're able to make all your dreams come true. Looking back, connecting the dots, what does your journey say about America? Oh, wow. <laughs> Don't get me going here. I might start crying. Um, this is the greatest country uh, that 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 God ever gave access to. Um, I, I I just love America. Um, I just love the 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 multiplicity of opportunities for people who are uh, who have a goal, who have an objective, who have a dream. Um, you know, I tell kids all the time when I speak. You know. <laughs> I mean, and I tell parents as well, you know, if you can buy into your kid's dream, figure out what it is, you know, buy into that dream. And I mean, buy into it in a way that just doesn't give it lip service. It's, it's actually makes you uh, expend energy to help them get to their goal and, and achieve their objectives. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know, I, I don't know another country in the world where you could have the freedoms to do the things that people can do here in America. And uh, we have so much to be grateful for, so much to be thankful for uh, from the standpoint of, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the people that, that, that make up this, the, the fabric of this, of this country. And, uh, you know, we're just blessed, overly blessed. This is, uh, uh, you know, I, I know that it's got to put a smile on God's face, you know, when, uh, when he looks at America and he says, that's kind of what I was talking about. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.